You're listening to Arrowhead Radio. Do my prejudices influence communication of the gospel? What is my position as a Christian on mission? Is Christianity compatible with other religious expression? Is evangelism simply white colonization? Do all expressions of faith lead to the same ultimate outcome? We can boldly face the relativism that is influencing missions and overtaking the clear message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Join us as we discuss complex issues facing the local church as it serves Christ in obedience to the Great Commission. This is Mission of the Nations with host Grant Fawcett. All right, so we're here uh, in the Arrowhead Radio Studio on a wet Friday afternoon with uh, Art Wanich, and he has joined us for our Circle Summit conference entitled Disentangling Syncretism. Um, we have a conference uh, every second year up to this point at Arrowhead that is intended to be a benefit to the church. Uh, it is intended to answer questions or deal with issues that can arise uh, for the church when it comes to intercultural or cross-cultural mission, discipleship, evangelism, whatever term it is that you want to use. Um, we've identified at Arrowhead, or at least as we've been traveling, visiting churches, in, engaging with church in Atlantic Canada, that there can be some confusion surrounding what might be called contextualization or what can be called syncretism at times. Where are lines drawn? Where does scripture draw lines? What is the reality of um, the gospel in culture and how does that look when we start seeing the Holy Spirit convict us about things that are of the world and not of the world. And it's a big conversation. It's a broad stroke that has a lot of facets and we're not going to address them all in this one short podcast. Um, we're probably not going to address them all tomorrow during our conference, but I think it's important. Uh, we in Atlantic Canada have even seen uh, the CABAC, uh, the Convention Baptist of Atlantic Canada, um, otherwise known as the United Baptists, had a Roman Catholic woman at their Oasis conference two years ago, pray to open the meetings to Mother Earth. And what does that indicate? What what are we talking about when those sorts of things are happening? And what does that communicate as far as the gospel goes? So Art, I really want to welcome you uh, for joining me today uh, to talk about this topic. It's a sensitive issue. Um, it's an issue that a lot of people think about in different ways, and we want to be sensitive to people. And I know Art um, has a heart to be sensitive to people, but also uh, to be sensitive to Scripture and to to reality and to truth. And so we're going to talk about it a little bit. I know that you were uh, speaking with Mark Dana uh, for Hope to the Nations, our other podcast program, and that you shared your testimony with him at that time. Um, and so if people want to find out a lot about you, they can listen to that and see your journey with Christ. But why don't you just tell us a bit about who you are and, and what, what on earth led you to say yes to coming and speaking about syncretism at this conference? <laughs> uh, thank you for having me here, Grant. And thank you for, uh, yeah, thank you for the conference and for inviting me here. Uh, 
I'm a Métis man. My family, uh, my wife is Hungarian and English. We have uh, five sons, and we adopted two girls. Uh, yeah, I guess we, we, I was raised in a normal, traditional Métis home and in northern Alberta, where I was from, and then we moved to Edmonton, and my sisters and my older brothers end up marrying into the reserves around there so they became uh treaty and then but that really involved my family getting into native spirituality we were originally catholic and as you said i think you you said a, a catholic woman mm. opened the uh, the prayer meeting and so praying to mother earth which is generally not a catholic uh position but catholicism does allow you to continue with your traditional beliefs. They just in, incorporate that. So if you want to define syncretism, <laughs> that's a perfectly good picture of, of that. Mm. Uh, syncretism is just, is really uh, how we would look at it from our, from our religiosity perspective or Christian perspective is taking the word of God and taking your historical religion that you were practicing. When the missionaries come, they introduce the word of God to you. You you receive the word of God, but you don't let go of those traditional practices and you blend those two and you end up creating a, a, a third religion, if you will. So it's mm-hmm. not, not Christian and not your traditional one. It's a blend of those two. And so that's, that's what syncretism would define as for, from our perspective. Mm. I wonder why there seems to be so much confusion or question from the church about what's okay. I, I know I'm in churches and they'll say, well, why is the sweat lodge not okay? And why can we not just say the great spirit is your understanding of God? Why can't we, why can't we talk in those terms? And, or maybe we can, I, I mean, maybe, maybe we can talk in those terms, but what would you, what do you think about that? I mean, in a practical way. Uh, what you're asking is, uh, the answer to what you're asking is not an easy answer. It's not a short answer. Right. Uh, and I am by no means an expert on anything. Okay. But. <laughs> Me neither, but here we so, have a podcast. <laughs> so I'll, I'll try to talk a little bit to that. Uh, before, say, 1960, uh, I was actually born before 1960, so <laughs> I'm old. No. But there you go. But before, say, 1960 and going back in history, the further you go back, the more literate people were of the Bible. And as you project forward, there were, uh, in church history, there were very strong denominational lines. Baptists were Baptists, uh, all the different types of religions, Anglican, uh, Pentecostals, uh, all of those things, there were very strong uh, walls or lines, boundaries between those ones. And the churches used to train up their young men. Mm. And so you ended up reproducing yourself and your, the church plant that you did would look a lot like you and look a lot like you and look a lot like you and so on and so forth. As we progress further into this and the, uh, the developments in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, those kind of denominational barriers started going down and the government got involved with rules and regulations and you had to 
hire this type of person or that type of person and we couldn't afford to have, we don't have as many young men anymore. And so then became the development of seminaries. And when seminaries got developed, people started sending their young men to these places. And so you ended up getting, for lack of a better term, you ended up getting other people's baggage in your churches. And so now when you look at the church, the church, one church to another church doesn't look much different anymore. They're pretty much all the same. They still call themselves different things, but they, for all intents and purposes, they don't look the same. Uh, Historically, uh, when North America was being opened up and developed and you're walking or riding across the prairie and you could see far away the town you were going to, historically, the biggest, largest, tallest building was the church steeple. Mm. You could always see that. And that's what society was built around, focused around, lived around. Now you look at the big cities, what do you see? The big buildings belong to the banks. Mm. And that's what you see. Now you go driving down the street and you'll see a, 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 a strip mall and there's uh, whatever is now, what's common, uh, Costco or something, or they get, right. no, but they're not in a yeah. strip mall, but strip Bo- mall box, stores. Box stores, yeah. So you have uh, Mr. Sub, you have Kentucky Fried Chicken, you have uh, the dollar store, mm-hmm. and then you have the church, and then you have another store. Yeah. The church has blended itself so well into society now, we can't tell the difference. Hmm. And so when you're asking, why, the, why are the churches faltering, if you will, is because it started with the seminary process where we started hiring people that weren't us. They got their training elsewhere. And so we all started looking the same. So now there's almost no denominational barriers anymore. Mm-hmm. And now as the church has, that message got watered down, we got weaker and weaker. More and more people leave the church every year. So we're getting more desperate. We do different things to bring people in. Mm-hmm. And we think we have to look like society. Mm-hmm. And now we look like society. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of difference we're making. None. Right. And wow. so that's, you know, when you ask that question, for me, like I said, I'm not an expert. I'm just... This is my opinion, looking yeah. at what I see. Right, yeah. And that's what I see, and those are the end results of why I see what I see, is that it started way back then. And, and my whole thing with churches is, if you're a church, why don't you train up your young men? Why, hmm. you know, and now you will not allow a person to, to preach unless they've got some kind of degree from somewhere. Jesus Christ were to come into this world today, he would not be allowed to preach. right. And so that's kind of where we're at. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not sure if I, I went off on some rabbit no, trail I from what I, you were asking. No, I think, I think that's a really important point. I think we have stepped away from solid biblically oriented ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. And I think, I think you really hit on something key there. When we have stopped worshiping together in the way that honors God the most... I think we are at the most risk of faltering. I mean, there are, there's very, I think, clear outlines throughout scripture of God wanting to be worshiped in very specific ways and, um, and raising up young men in the church, I think is something that's taught in the New Testament. It seems to clear to me that, uh, that, that, uh, that, that that's sort of a model that we're given. And, and that's a very interesting point. I never really thought of it that way. Um, but I think that that's a really interesting point. 
I guess the question then becomes, how do we, how do we start to answer? I guess the first thing might be to determine the origin of the question. Cause I know when I'm in churches visiting and talking about Arrowhead and the ministry we're doing, I'm asked a lot of different questions, but the intent behind those questions is often different. Sometimes it's because there's a genuine desire for obedience. Sometimes it's because there's prejudice. Sometimes it's because there's an overwhelming sense of political agenda. Sometimes it's complacency. And so I might be asked the same question four times and it be for a different reason. But I think at the end of the day, there's a, there's a truth behind the what's and the why's that, that people just need to start considering. It's gotta be, it's gotta be rooted in scripture, but how do we, how can I inspire the local church in New Brunswick, those, those that aren't looking to scripture to start thinking critically about the attributes of God and his glory and how he wishes to be worshiped and, and the exclusivity. I mean, I've asked Andrew Arden to come tomorrow and talk strictly on the exclusivity of Christianity. Um, I think those are all kind of pieces of this big complicated puzzle. We don't want to alienate people and we want to honor people in their culture, but is it possible that we're afraid of offending someone in another culture by criticizing a practice? Do you think that that's part of it? Like how does, does anyone from, from one culture have the, the qualification to say to another culture that practice dishonors God, or does it have to be the work of the Holy Spirit? that does that for that person? How, how, how can we approach some of these, these, that's a lot of stuff, right? But these are the things that have been chewing around in my mind or that I've been asked. And I don't know the answer, you know, I, I don't know that so I which can, question you had just asked about 15. Yeah. Let's start with the last one. <laughs> so can, when, what actually what you were, you were saying earlier when you started, uh, you were saying they ask you these questions out of yeah. certain different reasons. Do you right. think underlying those reasons is perhaps guilt of some sort? Maybe. They want to be obedient, but they're, and they. There's got to be some tension, right? Because uh, when someone comes up and asks me something that's clearly racist based on the way they've framed it, but we're in a church, I've got to think there's a tension in them for asking that. Yeah, we just, we just kind of defined racism differently in that podcast earlier. So if you oh, okay. hear that, you'll have to go listen to that. <laughs> I wasn't uh, privy to that one. But, <laughs> but um, I think the end result of those questions in those churches that you're talking about here, that's not by any means a, a local Eastern Canada problem. It's a North American issue. Right. But they all stem back to the reason I just gave earlier. Right. To the watering down of the Word of God. And so we have a lot of I guess the term I've heard is cultural Christians. Yeah. A lot of times you get, you get couples who don't go to church. Yeah. Nobody goes to church. Yeah. And then, and then they get married and they have children and they think, oh, we got to take the kids to church. Mm. And so they go to church. But I, I've, uh, I've been to quite a few churches in my journeys and there was only one church where after the service was done, the pastor made a beeline for me and he started grilling me on what I was doing there and what I knew. And mm. like, that should be absolutely automatic. 
when right. you see somebody new, but it's only ever happened once. Right. And so now you've got this new couple coming to church with their kids. We're just so happy they're here. Right. We love them. We incorporate them into the congregation and their kids grow up in Sunday school and we teach them all the good stories, good stories, good stories. And we keep that up. And let's say you, Grant, you, you and, and your family come to church. You yeah. have no Bible background. You have nothing. You just felt that you, you think your children needed something good and you thought that was church. And so you came. Yeah, yeah. And so you come to church and you faithfully come to church now because you like it. We love you here. You're, you're, it's safe. It's comfortable. It's easy. We're easy to get along with. And you come and you stay five years eight years, 10 years, your children are now a big part of the youth group. And while Grant's been here for like 12 years now, you've got to become an elder. Hmm. And before you know it, you're on the elders board and you're making decisions and you have no idea what the Bible's about. Right. Because there isn't a chance, (laughs) there's not one in a hundred who will ever get saved by going to church and listening to the pastor on Sunday. Hmm. That's not the job of the service. That's Mm. your job and my job as congregants are to, once we leave that building, that's our mission field. Right. We're to take our our friends and neighbors to disciple them. Once they get saved, we're supposed to bring them to church. Mm. And church is for edification, for supporting each other, for learning, teaching. But the saving is supposed to happen out there. Mm. The concept we have is I've got to take my neighbor and drag him to church and throw him at the feet of the pastor and he's all yours. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's, it's really kind of encouraging and refreshing actually to hear you articulating it that way because I feel very much the same way. Like, uh, it sounds to me like what we're saying is that syncretism isn't the core problem. It's a symptom of a bigger problem and that that bigger problem is born out of a poor ecclesiology, a poor walking out of obedience in church and, and living obediently as Christians, the complacency of the, the pew sitting Christian who thinks that it's sufficient to be sitting there and then come back next Sunday and sit there again. And I give my money every Sunday. Mm. You know, it's, you know, uh, it's, people aren't trying to buy their way to heaven. That's not what I meant by that. It's just, it's, it's the, uh, our desire not to offend anybody. Mm. And, and I think it's our, it's our job to, to understand what, what is your position when you come into our church? Mm -hmm. Because realistically you shouldn't be here if you're not a Christian. Mm -hmm. Now I know that's kind of an anathema if that's a word. Uh, that people would understand. I know that's kind of an anathema for people. They're in church. You got to, you know, but the problem with our church is we don't do anything with them. Right. We don't have a program. And so we don't have a means. Uh, like I said, we were Catholic. My family back home are still Catholic. My, my, my children and my wife and I were Christian, different from, different from Catholics, but the Catholics actually have that one right. Mm. When you go to the Catholic church for the first time, and so they identify you and your family, Grant, you've come into the church, so they identify a new group, they, you go into a program where for six months, you sit there and you sing songs with us, and then when the church service is starting, you and all the catechumens, is the word, mm-hmm. are taken away, 
and you go downstairs and you learn about what it is to be Catholic. Hmm. I don't know. I've never done the program, but that's what you learn. And for six months, they train you on how to be Catholic. Hmm. And then, then you're welcomed into the, into the family, if you will. Like yeah. in, in, in our Protestant churches, that's exactly what we should do. When you come in and you're new, mm-hmm. there should be a, a, uh, a program where you come in, you sing the songs with us, your kids go to the classes, but you and your, your wife go into the class, classes and be trained a firm foundation of what does mm-hmm. the Bible say, what's the Word of God, who is Jesus Christ. The whole trick with, with the gospel message is not the love of Jesus. That's not the point. The point is, is for you if I'm discipling you, it's my job to get you lost. Right. You have to get lost before you will need a savior. Right. And that's what these people need. And then, like you said, you know, what's, why do I feel concerned for my neighbor? Or why do I want to invite these people? Or, or why do I, am I concerned for them? It's because of the love of Christ. Because you know, if you have an understanding that before you were saved, you were going to hell. Right. And you got that understanding. Once you get that understanding, you get concerned because your friends and neighbors, you know, you know where they're going without Jesus. Right. And unless you're grounded firmly in that understanding, you, you really don't think about things like that. And that's the problem with the people in the churches. They don't have that grounding. And so they think mission work is for missionaries. So, so here's a question that comes to mind. I, I think you're bang on. I mean, I, I think that that's, that we've hit the heart of this issue. I wonder if one of the things that the church has fallen, fallen prey to is a cultural syncretism with Western culture. We've started measuring the successes of our church by the number of people that come. And so our goal has become, let's make the gospel a product so that we can sell it to people so that they'll be sitting in the pews. And we've used all kinds of means to bring those people into the fellowship so that we can say, look, we're successful, but at the end of the day, we don't know if they're actually Christians. If they're actually part of the big C church, something I said one time to a, a pastor friend who was trying to grow the church by numbers and they were welcoming in unsafe people. I said, unbelievers that come to this church should feel welcome. Absolutely. The warmth of Christianity should be something that appeals, but they should also feel very uncomfortable while they're here, because the message should bring attention to them that's overwhelming. And I think you're right. I think that in, by and large, that we miss that. Uh, but do you think, do you think that, that maybe the church has made itself a victim of syncretism with Western culture and, you know, um, materialism and business-oriented measuring of success and, and those kinds of things? Is that potentially a reality? I, I would think so. As I said, I'm not an expert on anything. <laughs> You're asking me pointed questions that I can't answer. That's all right. But yes. I don't think I can answer them either. We're just talking about syncretism it. Syncretism <laughs> permeates every part of our, our life, everything we do. Right. Even even you and I who are holier than I, or holier <laughs> than you, if you will. Right. I mean, there's, there's a ton of things that we do that are syncretistic in nature. Hmm. And it's just because it's the culture we live in. It, mm. it really is, you know, it started way back in the sixties, uh, why I said previous to 1960s, but in the sixties came the, the free love, free sex, free, that secularization of, of North America started then. 
And that's part of all of our culture everywhere we look. Mm-hmm. And so it's, as, as you come into Christianity, you come into walk with, with the Lord, it's, you weren't made good. So you've still got all of that stuff that's around in life around you. So a lot of things we do, uh, a lot of Christian things, a lot of things that these other denominations, you're, you're talking about like native spirituality, that type of stuff. That's a big part of, you know, your ministry here, mm-hmm. contact with native people. And the vast majority of those people have had an original introduction to the Bible through Catholicism historically. And so most of Canada, the native people, their first contact with the Bible was through the Catholic priests or the Jesuits, etc. that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and so once, let's, let's say the position is the Catholic church is messed up. Okay. And so they deliver that messed up message to the target group and the target group didn't quite get the message exactly 100% clear because it wasn't probably delivered in their language. Right. And so they kind of mixed it up a little bit. So they made some syncretism there. But the Catholic Church is a church that will absorb whatever culture you're in, whatever religion you have. And so they, they just by virtue of who they are, they promote syncretism. Mm. And so even though the, if the message was slightly garbled because it was delivered in a different language, you still would have syncretized it anyway. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how we've arrived at where we are today, where the different people groups of North America, let's say Canada specifically, have a syncretized version of it. They have this concept of it's a white man's gospel. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of people even, uh, Non-native people think the Bible was, is a book written by old Jews and they don't see any relevance in it today. You know, that secularization that started then is, is everywhere now. And so it's hard to differentiate what one group is from another. And for us as, as Christians looking at all of that, it's hard to pick out a hundred percent, all of what is syncretized and what isn't. Mm. And so it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's not only Christian, as I said, you know, we define kind of syncretism from a Christian perspective, but it's a mixing of, of all of those different things. The Catholic church, which is not Christian and the native culture, which is definitely not Christian when they come together and they create some other version, Mm. it's everywhere. Hmm. I think, I think that that, I think that that's something that we need to start helping people think critically about. Um, when we're looking outwardly, also when we're t- talking about evangelism and, and teaching other people about the gospel, I, the question that comes up over and over again is what, what's the difference between contextualization and syncretism? And I think again, we're, we're going back to scripture, we're going back to the church and we're, we're going back to say, well, the, tr- the truth is the truth, but we have to understand that Western European expression of church isn't necessarily the only biblical obedient expression of church, but there has to be a, there has to be a way for us to know where the lines are. And I think if we were 
rooted in scripture and good ecclesiology, then we could do that more easily than, than we do right now. I think the questions would be different that we're, that we're asking or being asked, you know, when we're doing this kind of work. I, I had someone tell me when I first started working with NCEM, I didn't know, I still don't know anything, I think. I, I, I don't know. But <laughs> when I first started with NCEM, someone told me, NCEM plants churches. This is what your churches better look like. They better, you know, have a choir and a pulpit. And, and I thought <laughs> that doesn't sound quite right. Like, you know, and then as we started to study and look at it, I mean, I learned a great deal from some pretty great men about, about what, what is the Bible teaching about worship and Christ has to be at the center, not my tradition. And so I think that's true for everybody, but I think it makes us uncomfortable, especially in the current cultural climate of cultural appropriation or cultural criticism or all of those things. It's uncomfortable to say, Jesus is supposed to be at the middle of your worship, not your tradition, whether you're First Nations or European descended or Hungarian or German or, or whatever. I mean, can you speak into that a little bit? I, I know that there's a big, there's a big movement right now. There's a lot of division within the church over social justice and cultural appropriation. And Jesus has to unite us. And how do, how does that look for, for you? I mean, uh, for me, that, uh, again, Grant, 15 questions. <laughs> I got to get better at doing this. <laughs> uh, so l- let me try to start unpacking all of that. It's a big, how much time do we have? <laughs> well, seven hours. <laughs> anyway, um, it, it's all rooted back again to the same issue and problem yeah. of our watered down message to begin with. Mm-hmm. Now you, you said you used the word contextualization. What does that mean? It's a great, I, I hear the word and, and whenever I hear it, the person saying it means something slightly different than the last person that said it. Uh, I think ideally what the word should mean is that we are communicating the gospel in a way that is readily understood. I think it should mean receptor-based teaching, and that might mean, and, and I know I don't want to jump the gun because I know I've received some of the questions for the panel discussion for tomorrow, and I know one of the things Andrew's going to talk about is Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, when he went to China, dressed like the Chinese. And so the question is going to be, and this isn't going to air until after the circle summit. So that's okay. The question is going to be, is that contextualization or is that syncretism? And I think that that's the kind of question that we should answer because I think people don't know what the difference is. Is there an answer for that? I think there's opinions and I think we can have a conversation about it that holds scripture at the center and come to a... Could it be as simple as Hudson Taylor was in China and the only clothes he could buy were Chinese? <laughs> it could be. It could very well be. I mean, that, that could very I mean, well be. I don't be think that's why, but I mean, that's... You but, know, uh, contextualization is, if, if I'm looking at it from, from a perspective, uh, is looking at the, what were the traditional uh, practices of native people? Mm-hmm. And then when you bring the word of God into it, uh, what can you continue to do and what can't you do anymore? Right. Now that's kind of what I will look at, say contextualization. So we'll, mm-hmm. we'll talk from that kind of perspective. Sure. And then a, if uh, you're okay with after you're done, I've got two examples in my head that I'd like <laughs> to ask you about. If that's okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an expert on anything. No, me neither. That's, that's okay. Okay. So there's one camp that will 
take everything that was traditional native culture, religion, uh, you know, spirit, this spirit, that, Mm -hmm. and there's a word called redeeming. So they're going to redeem that in and now use it for their worship. Mm -hmm. And there's another camp which says that, you know, that, that drum had a spirit indwelling it, that rattle had a thing. Those dances are to, to, are demonic and to Satan and you can't have any of that. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's these, these two, they're native people on both ends. Mm Mm-hmm with these types of, uh, thoughts. Uh, I think from, uh, C to C to C, is that how you say it in Canada? I guess so. Uh, I don't think there's anything that's universal, universally looked at amongst native people the same mm-hmm. all the way. So, so they look at things differently. Some things have uh, a more spiritual connection to them than others. When I say spiritual, it means like more involving the spirits. Mm-hmm. Like a sweat lodge is where you talk to, Ancestors. communicate with the dead, when you communicate with spirits that, you know, not everybody looks at the sweat lodge like that, yeah. but a lot of them do. And so that type of thing would be shunned by some people. And so, so that's just an example. Uh, for my take on it, uh, I don't know anywhere in the Bible where anything inanimate was inhabited by a spirit. Spirits, uh, inhabit bodies, people, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a donkey, not sure. <laughs> uh, now we know that, you know, they, they uh, a bunch of them got put into pigs. Yeah. And then the pigs all ran the pigs all themselves. went and committed suicide. Uh, anyway, so there, but in terms of, you know, native people believing this drum has a spirit. I don't think that's biblical. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any support in the Bible for that. Mm-hmm. Now, whether you would bring that into service or not, that's, you know, I'm not going to comment on that one way or another because sure. that's not my background. Right. I, uh, you know, like I said, my earlier, uh, being a Métis, my, my historical stuff is fiddle music and jigging and part native, part white, you know, so... I was my family were not involved in native spirituality so much while I was home. They did get into it later, mm-hmm. uh, but I had already left. And so a lot of what I'm doing is more like academic uh, inspection of it. So my studying, looking, reading, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So that's where you have the two differences is where, where one group believes that spirits physically inhabit these things mm-hmm. and you have the other group that, I'm not sure to the level of their, their thinking in terms of that, but for me, so they would feel comfortable redeeming it where one group would not. For me, it's, uh, God is the all powerful period. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, and I don't, I don't think there's any biblical support for spirits inhabiting anything inanimate. Mm. So you know, where that applies to contextualization is something that I'm, I'm not, I can't comment on that. Okay. And that's fair. Cause I can't, I can't either. It's not my history or background. You know, I know I've had lots of conversations with people about the redeeming of styles of music, 
because some people are uncomfortable with different styles of music. So those are conversations I've had because that's my background. Like rappers of the devil kind right, of deal? Right, <clears throat> right, right. Okay. But there are Christian, I mean, it is, but. <laughs> <laughs> there's Christian guys out there that are preaching that there are more solid lyrics in some of their rap songs than in some hymns, but there are people who believe that that can't be redeemed because the devil had it. It, rap music was always violence and drugs and alcohol and sex. It's an interesting way, the way you put it. You said the devil had it. Yeah, but it didn't belong to him. What world were you born in? <laughs> All of us were born in the kingdom of darkness. Right. The devil had all of us. Right. And we've been redeemed. Is this, is that what you're Yeah. Right. And we've been redeemed. So that, that would be what I would understand about it, but some people completely disagree. So I've had that conversation about contextualizing, but there's two examples that came into my mind Just earlier. Just before you get there. Yeah. Yeah. Let me kind of rewind, digress a bit here. Sure. Uh, when you're, when you're discipling somebody, it, and we were talking earlier about, you know, native culture or European culture or Western culture. Every culture that received the word of God mm-hmm. changed because, remember, we were all born into a fallen world. Mm-hmm. Every culture on earth was created by fallen man. Mm. And the Bible says that we prefer darkness over light. We run and hide. We, right. like, we love sinning. Absolutely. It's fantastic for a season. And so if every culture was produced by fallen man, there is nothing in our culture that is going to be pleasing to God because inherently we don't want to do that. Right. And so when we receive the word of God, this is not a native North American issue. This is not every culture that receives the word of God changes. And the, and so the teaching of the Bible is cross-cultural. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was the word of God is meant for you, for me, for, for everybody. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant what my, my spiritual practices were before. Mm-hmm. And as, as a, as a, as a disciple of God and coming to disciple a people group, a target group, let's say the native people, is not my place to tell them what's right and what's wrong, what they can redeem, what they can't redeem, because I don't understand their culture mm-hmm. to the level that they do. Mm-hmm. Now, it's my job to understand the culture enough so I can communicate the word of God in a way that they will understand that is clear to them. Mm-hmm. Now, that's where we've fallen down a lot of the times. We come in and teach Jesus' love and blah, 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 blah. Right. And we make no never mind to what, what are they hearing? What eyes are they using to see the picture? Do they see the picture we see? And mm. 99% of the time, they don't. Mm. But, but we don't understand that. You know, the worldview is a, is a big kind of buzzword that everybody uses. And really, it's, it's like culture. Right. Culture, for the, the simplest definition of culture for me is the physical manifestation of what the group believes. Mm. Wow, that's great. So yeah. what do you believe and what does, how do you translate that? What, how do you do? Why do you do what you do? You do that because that's your culture. Mm. And so once I understand your culture... Then I can, then I'm prepared to give you the message of God. And once you understand the message of God, it's not my job to tell you what's right or what's wrong. Mm. It's my job to witness, Amen. to be a witness. What do I know? What did I see? Yeah. And that's, that's my job. And so 
Once you become a Christian, once you come to understand the gospel message, the price that was paid for you, what doesn't honor God will drop off of its own. It almost sounds like you're saying the Holy Spirit might convict people who are saved. That would be a white man way of saying okay. it. Okay. <laughs> As but, a white man, I don't take any offense to that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and so that's what it is, 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 uh, is, so we've got these two camps that are, are right and left, if you will, of this contextualization of, of redeeming or not redeeming. And it's really, it's an understanding of their culture where they come from. Mm. Is because it's not between you and me. Right. It's between them and God. Amen. Yeah. And and if, if God is bigger than all of that. Right. So if I'm comfortable beating this drum to God mm. and my neighbor over there is not, I, I for me that's where we are. It's not my place to say yes or no. Mm-hmm. It's up to the Holy Spirit to bring that peace in you in what you're doing. And so, you know, every culture is different. Like I said, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything that every native tribe looks at the same, mm. spiritually speaking. Right. And so that will be slightly different from others. So kind of a, a long-winded way of, hopefully that's... No, that's, I, I really appreciate you sharing all that. I think that that's an important part of the conversation that I, I think we're getting at the heart of the problem instead of the symptoms of the problem. I think that's really helpful. Um, I hope it's helpful for those who are listening. I had two ideas that came into my mind earlier of examples that I've heard about. I was taught in a seminar or I read about, um, and they're both with respect to reaching a culture that hasn't heard about Christ yet. So these are people that have a manifestation of what they believe that's different than Christianity. Um, The first example is from Don Richardson's book, Peace Child, when he took a mechanism from their worship and was talking about the redeeming child. And and they said, well, that's a thing we do. And he used that in teaching them the gospel. That's one, that's one, I think he would feel that that was contextualization. I don't know. Um, The other example was Mark Zuck. Just before we go off of that topic, I'm not 100%. I've heard of the Peace Child, but I've not read it, and I'm not familiar really with the background of it. Is it really more like what they did in Europe, where where they would marry their daughter off to the enemy, so they became allies? Is that kind of the heart of what they were doing? I think something like that. I I read it in Bible school, so it has been some time since I read it, but it was something to that degree. Uh, Okay, but I don't see that as being a spiritual thing. Okay. So I wouldn't see that as anything that would be... Uh, I don't think that would be uh, contextualizing in any way if I was to use that to, I don't know what Mr. Richardson did. So it was kind of like, uh, well, how, what was the application? I don't At the It was part of his teaching of the Redeemer child, uh, something that they were doing in their culture with this, this baby Redeemer child was similar to Christ coming as a baby and being the Redeemer. And, and so there was a correlation drawn between what they were already doing and what the gospel was teaching. Um, and I, I would probably have to read it again to get okay, a fuller so picture of it. But a different contextualization than what I was referring to before. It, is. it has nothing to do with spiritual. It had to do with pictures. Right. Something that, that I, my way of conveying the gospel message. So his way he understood, he applied something they were doing to the Bible story. So it made more sense to them. Yeah. Okay, is, that, is that more like, well, I'll wait till I ask this question until... And I'm just looking for your opinion. I know you're not an expert, but, um, the second one is similar. 
in nature. Uh, Mark Zook, when he was teaching, did you go to the worldview seminars out, out West? At no. Grip? No. Mark Zook came to um, KBI and gave us a seminar on, on the work he had done with the Moke people in Papua New Guinea. Um, and it was really interesting and compelling. And he talked about a lot of backstory and stuff that went with that story, uh, the Itau. Uh, he was a new tribes missionary in Papua New Guinea and they produced a, a movie called Itau, which is quite fantastic, but it outlines the testimony of his gospel. He used creation of Christ and taught them uh, in their own language, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. But at one point he was um, learning the language and he realized that he had been doing some translation with a specific word and he learned that what that word meant something in their language, very specific. And the word was for baptism. And he was using the word for baptism in his translation, but he found out that what that word meant in their language was we've put a stone in the river where we, we took a child and we held that boy underwater to the point of exhaustion. And then we brought him out of the water and he was now a man. And we put a stone in the river to mark that spot. And so the word they were using to describe that activity, he had used for baptism. And he felt that that was not a healthy form of contextualizing because that's not what baptism was. Um, so those are both sort of illustrative mechanisms where one guy decided one thing and another guy decided another thing. And I'm not trying to say one's right and one's wrong. Maybe they're both right. I don't, I don't know, but I just thought as a part of this, as a part of this discussion, you know, is there a way for us to, to come at this conversation with a level of discernment? And I think there is, I think, I think we've kind of answered that, but, but what are your thoughts on, on those things, you know? As related to native people? Well, as re just as related to evangelism in general or, or discipleship or teaching, so the teaching methodologies the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Is what you're asking, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I can see uh, half drowning a person <laughs> to not being a, an adequate representation of, of baptism. Uh, I think baptism, by and large, in Christianity is a misunderstood ism. Uh, <laughs> There's really, a lot of misunderstood isms in Christianity. You know, at the end of, of the book of Matthew, it says, go out into all the world and, uh, oh, what does it say? Preach the gospel, Preach as I've told gospel. you, baptizing him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. And was that 1928, I think, is the verse? Uh, yeah. Uh, making disciples of all the nations of the world, teaching them everything, identifying them with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's really what baptism is. Baptism is identification. That's what the, that's the root of the word. The root of the word is from, from the Greeks. And it has, it has to do with a textile industry. So they would take a white piece of cotton. Yeah. And they would put it in this vat of red dye and they would bring that piece of cloth out and it's now red. It is said to be baptized because it's identified with red. Huh. If I did it with blue, it's now baptized blue. And so that's where, where that, that's the origin of that word. And when it got applied to Christianity, which is not really different from what you were saying about the peace child and about this, right. this stone event. Yeah. It's taking something that's cultural, but applying it to a different thing that we would understand. So for them in that culture, the identification, they understood that. Mm. They understood the word baptizio and what that meant. So in delivering the message now, go to all the world and identify the people with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
So it's, and so we would use the term baptism, but mm-hmm. that's really what it meant, identifying. And that's how it got worded in that phrase, in that verse, identifying with them with the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And that's what baptism is. That's why baptism is a public declaration. Mm-hmm. You symbolically are dying with Christ and raising with Christ. When you go in the water, you come out. And when you come out, now you do your big spiel. But your big spiel is really your public declaration that you, going forward, from here on forward, I want to be identified with the Father, Son, and the Holy mm-hmm. Ghost. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of uh, where that comes from. Uh, methodologies, uh, yeah, that's, that's an example, I think, from, from early Christianity where they took something and applied it mm-hmm. in a way not unlike that. You know, I know new tribes in New Guinea talking about Christ is the cornerstone, had nothing in their world to right. have a cornerstone, so they used the center pole that held up the hut. It, that, was, that was the example they used. Would you equate that with Paul at Mars Hill? This is the altar to the unknown God, and I'll tell you about that guy. Uh, I guess in a different context, that, that would be the same. Similar the idea. problem with, with that and speaking to Greeks, mm. uh, what happened on the day of Pentecost? Do you remember? There was uh, this group of people that had these little tongues of, tongues fire, of fire come and came in languages. and dwelled them, and they... And they come out on the balcony and they start speaking and mm-hmm. they're speaking in all these different languages that they didn't know half an hour ago, right. but they know now. Yeah. And so they're speaking in these languages and then these people believed, got baptized mm. and there were, you know, thousands of people were added that day. And so now you go to Paul mm-hmm. and he's delivering this message to the Greeks. Mm-hmm. And what did they do? They dragged him into court. He was taken before what's called the Areopagus, who were the council of the day, and they, you know, what, tell us what is it you're talking about. The problem is, and this is our problem today with people in our churches, mm. is they're not Jews. Mm. The Jewish people had the Old Testament. They understood, like I said earlier, we're trying to get you lost. Mm. They understood they're lost. Mm. They're trying to get good. They're trying to make themselves right. They do all the offerings and sacrifices and everything, but they still have that guilt. And so they were ready for a savior. And when the apostles came out and gave them in their heart languages, right, the languages they understood when the apostles came and gave them the gospel message of Jesus Christ in their heart languages, they were ready to take that step. Hmm. And thousands were added to the church that day and that gospel message spread throughout the world after that. Mm. Now, when Paul is in, in Greece and on Mars Hill, they have no background in Christian. They were covering their bases. They had every God they knew of was that's, there. That's right. Yeah. And that's kind of what we do nowadays because mm. we don't have the understanding of the Old Testament. We don't know we're lost. We don't know we need a savior. Mm. And so we keep trying all these different things, but nothing's going to get there except Jesus Christ. And so when he gave the message the second time, he started with, in the beginning, God. And he put the foundation in place. Yeah. And what generally happens, and what happened there, as kind of a pattern for us, some believed, some wanted to hear more, and some scoffed. Hmm. And that's kind of how, how I think it, 
as a general pattern how it works. But you have to put the foundation in place first before you can get Jesus Christ. You have to have a reason. You have to give them the origin. You have to give them the history mm. of where they came from, why they're here, and the fact that God is holy, set apart, and then once they make that understanding that they can't get there by themselves, they need a Savior, then you bring in Jesus Christ. Mm. And that's kind of what Paul did. Mm. So if that, if that, I don't know if I went off track with what you were asking, but... No, no, I, I think that's very helpful. It sounds like just, maybe we'll, we'll just wrap up with this idea, but it sounds to me, and I, if I'm, if, if, if I'm wrong about what you're saying, correct me, but I, it sounds to me like what we're saying is that the heart of this issue isn't the issue. At the heart of this issue is a love for God's word and obedience to God's word and a revival of the local church in general that that holds firmly to truth and then expresses that rightly. Is that fair assessment of our conversation, do you think? I th- I think so. I'm not sure if I'd articulate it that way. No, because yeah, white guy over here. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad communication. That's yeah. That's the root of it. It's yeah. bad communication and the message getting garbled over the centuries, literally mm. centuries. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, God never, he always has his remnant. So mm-hmm. it's there. The message is there. The Holy Spirit is still, still here. Right. But by and large, it's a people not understanding the gospel message. Mm. Mostly, mostly, mostly because they don't understand the beginning. They don't understand where they came from. They don't understand original sin, if you will, Mm. and our separation from God. Mm. And once you grasp that, you know, once, once you get a grip on the gospel, you can't help but tell somebody. Mm. And that's where we're not. That's fantastic. Well, that's a great challenge for us, Art, and I really appreciate you, um, taking the time to not be an expert with us for an hour and, uh, and discuss this topic. I know it's a, it's a complex topic and, uh, there's lots more for us to talk about, but I think the challenge for us as Christians to strive for a ultimate degree of obedience is really important. And, uh, so, so thanks. And I'm really looking forward to hearing you talk tomorrow at the Circle Summit. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be great. This has been a broadcast of Arrowhead Radio, a ministry of Arrowhead Native Bible Center. For good Christian resources, visit our bookstore at wabanakibooks.com. Look for a new episode next week wherever you find your favorite podcasts.